You're listening to the Word of Hope, sermons preached at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Today's sermon is preached by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints of God, I want you to pay careful attention to this question. Who is the world telling you that you are? I want you to pay careful attention to this question, especially today if you're watching a football game, but even if not, I want you to pay attention to this. And I have a working theory, and I want to test it on you guys. I don't think I've ever told you this before. So I, I have the idea that the, that the culture wants us to think of ourselves in two ways. First, externally, as we act in the world, it wants us to think of ourselves as consumers, that we are defined by the things that we purchase, by the things that we buy, by the things that we wear and the things that we eat. We are externally consumers, and we are internally defined as victims by our wounds and our hurts and how I've been oppressed and cast aside and so forth. And the world is trying to teach us to think of ourselves in these two categories. Now, we'll see the consumerism on full display today, people fighting for our attention because they're fighting for our money, They want us to consume their stuff. But we will also see the conversation about who is a victim of whom. In fact, the whole controversy about kneeling during the national anthem is a controversy about who is a victim of whom. Now, this question, who are we as human beings, is called classically anthropology. And our culture has a unique anthropology. That is a unique doctrine of humanity, a a unique understanding of of who you are and who I am as a human being. And it's trying to teach us this way, this, in a a million subtle ways every day. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the Bible has a different anthropology, a different doctrine of humanity. It defines you and me in a different way. Jesus, in the parable that he puts before us today, invites us to understand ourselves as dust into which the Word of God has been planted. And that is how you are supposed to think of yourself. Dirt into which has come the seed of God's Word, a seed that is growing in faith and good works, and a seed that is assaulted from every side with trouble. Now, I hope you can see just right here at the beginning how different these two ways of looking at yourself are. If I'm a consumer and a victim, then... I'm defined by my purchases and by my overcomings. But if I'm a person that has heard the word of God, then I am defined by the word of God itself. And success, to me, does not look like riches or victories, but but rather, instead, success looks like faith. Clinging to God's word. Believing what he says about me and about himself. Now, this idea here about us being dirt into which the seed of God's word is planted is only like a small little part of how the Bible is inviting us to think of ourselves. It has a lot more to say about the reality of our humanity. In fact, I mean, so I I have to say this in the sermon, but I don't have a way to get to it and back from it. So just like this is like an aside. Okay, the full biblical anthropology is this, that we are created in God's image that we're fallen and completely corrupt in sin, completely depraved, that we are redeemed by God who came in our flesh and bore our sins to save us and give us forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, and that also we will be resurrected. That's the full picture of our own humanity. Creation, fall, redemption, and, and, and resurrection. 
But this little part that we're talking about, how we are those who hear the word of God, this has to do with us being redeemed, us being saved, us being rescued by God who comes to do that. Now, if we're on the same page about this, about the two different ideas about the way the world will consider us and the way that the scriptures teach us to think of ourselves, we're going to consider this parable of Jesus because Jesus is going, to, is going to press our thinking on a little bit further. He's not just telling us who we are. He's going to tell us how who we are in Christ is assaulted. The parable, after all, is not just about a seed that was planted in the dirt. It's about seed that was planted in the dirt and then in every way was assaulted and attacked. About the seed that fell on the path and the birds came and snatched it away. Or the seed that fell among the the, the stones, and it grew up, but then the sun came out and it withered away. Or the seed that fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked out the seed. In other words, and this is the point of what Jesus is saying, your faith is under assault in every which direction. God's word is under assault by the devil, the birds that come and steal away the seed. And, and by the pleasures of this world, the thorns that come and choke out the sun. We have to be so careful about this because even the good things in life that we are pursuing, Jesus is warning us that all these good things, if we set our focus on them, then they destroy our faith. We are not consumers. We are Christians being attacked by consumerism. We have to be on guard. And also the Word of God is being attacked by the troubles and tribulations of this life, by persecution and by suffering. This is the seed in the stones and it doesn't have enough root so that when the sun comes out and beats down on it, it withers away. And again, we make this point that we are not defined by our own troubles and by, and by our, our sufferings, but rather we are Christians who are assaulted in every way with trouble. And I want to focus on this, this assault of trouble for the rest of the sermon. Now, you guys know that one of the things that I always try to do is try to figure out how to talk to strangers about spiritual things. To, how do you jump that gap? Uh, and I haven't figured out a good way to do it. But uh, this week, I was visiting Arliss, who says hi, and after our visit, uh, uh, at the end of the visit, it, a, a question occurred to me, and so I thought I would try it out. So I walked over to the Starbucks, and I bought a cup of coffee that's right there by her place, and I started, I, asked, I was asking strangers this question. If you could ask God one question, what question would you ask? And I asked four people who were completely freaked out by it, but, <laughs> but I got four answers. The guy serving the coffee said, uh, <laughs> he said, what size did you want again? <laughs> and then he said, he said, well, I, that's a pretty deep question, but I suppose I would ask him, what's the point of all of this? And I said, all of what? And he said, all of it. What's the point? There was a middle-aged lady who was sitting by herself waiting for someone. I asked her the same question, and this is what she said to me. She said, I'm a teacher, and I had a 13-year-old boy, student, who got cancer. And last week he died. I'd ask God about that. There was a guy standing outside waiting for someone, and he said, I would ask God, why we have so many wars, all the time, war. And then as I was walking back to my car, the, a lady who worked in Arliss's building came out 
And I asked her the question. She said she was a Christian, but she said that she would ask God why there's so much pain. She said, I don't understand it. Why there is so much pain? Is it just because we're supposed to suffer and feel pain like Jesus did? I don't know. Now, this, of course, is not a scientific survey, but I was fascinated by the fact that all four people, all strangers, all had questions of about the same thing. I mean, the first guy, I'm not sure if he was specifically thinking about suffering, but all of the other ones were. They, were, they wanted to ask God about sickness, about death, about violence, about war, about pain, uh, and these are the things that trouble people. I, I was reading about this this week in a book about the problem of suffering, and I came across a couple of interesting points. Uh, this first, that there was a guy, Bart Ehrman, he was a liberal Bible scholar, and he stopped believing in God because of the existence of evil in the world. There's an atheist called Vexen Crabtree, which is a great name. <laughs> so he said, Vexen Crabtree said that, that God cannot possibly exist in view of all of the pain and the suffering in the universe. So that, this, so that the fact of pain and the fact of evil is being used uh, to question God, at least, and maybe even to disbelieve in God. Now, I think that this problem of suffering is presented to us both as a philosophical problem and as a practical problem. That as Jesus describes it in the parable of the, those who are, have their uh, roots in the soil and the, and the sun beats down on them, and, it is, and so the suffering assaults our faith. And if it's not a problem for you in particular, you can be sure that it's a problem for the people around you, that this is the question that they're answering. In fact, one of the things that came out in my little survey the other day about this question is that the Christians had a hard time thinking of what questions they might have for God, but those who didn't believe in God were very quick to ask him questions. That your friends and family who, who say that they don't believe in God have a lot of questions for God, and a lot of those questions revolve around this problem of pain and suffering. So what do we make of it? And what do we make of all of the trouble that we have in the world. What do we make of the pain and the evil and the suffering? If it's a philosophical problem and it's also a practical problem, I suppose we can think about it philosophically and then also practically or theologically. So first, philosophically, just a couple of things. We want to note that the fact that we can make a distinction between good and evil the fact that that distinction exists is itself a proof of the existence of God. If there was no God at all, if the universe was only the stuff that we can see and measure, just different atoms and molecules bouncing off of each other, then there would be no possible way of having a standard with which to judge something is good and something else is evil. Who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide that a hug is good and a knife to the back is bad? Who makes that decision? If it's just simply one choice and one action leading to another and there's nothing outside of the material universe, then it becomes impossible to even recognize something as evil. In the book Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this point. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and he thought that the strongest argument 
against the uh, existence of God was the presence of evil, but the more he thought about it, the more he realized that he was assuming the existence of a moral absolute to be able to determine that something was evil and that a moral absolute is an impossible thing to have unless God exists. So instead of seeing the existence of evil as proof that there is no God, in the end it turns itself on its head. The fact that we recognize something is evil is another proof that there is a God. And Lewis called this the moral argument from God and picked up on a lot of strains of that argument from the ancient church. Now, that is the philosophical argument. And the philosophical argument is helpful for us when we're having a philosophical debate. But I wonder if we need something more, if we want to say something more when we're right in the middle of all sorts of suffering. The philosophical argument might be helpful, but it comes up short in the end. So we want to have a a theological argument to this as well. And the theological argument that that we want to have embedded in our own heart goes something like this. While it is true that God is good, and it is true that God is all powerful, we see that God does not use his power and strength to assault the problem and existence of evil, but rather he has decided, determined, to fight against evil and to fight against suffering in his weakness. Not with strength. In in a word, our theological response to the problem of suffering is this. God also suffers. This is how Peter talks about it. In his first epistle, Peter takes on the problem of suffering. In fact, he talks about suffering six times in the epistle, and four of the times that he takes it up as a topic, he simply says this, Christ also suffered. Christ also suffered. That's it. In his wisdom, which is, as we heard in the text in Isaiah, higher than our thoughts, and his ways are more marvelous than our ways, in the wisdom of God, he has decided to address the problem of suffering, not by wiping away all suffering, but rather by sinking himself into it. He plunges himself into the suffering of this world. He puts himself in the midst of your suffering. And the suffering that Jesus knows is not simply the suffering of the fallen world, the the suffering of the fact that things are broken around here, that weather systems are broken and bodies are broken and disease of various kinds and sickness and loneliness and alienation and rejection and shame and, and even death. It's not just this kind of suffering. Jesus suffers even more. He suffers the wrath of God. He suffers the consequence of your sin and mine. He's cast away from the face of God. He hangs on the cross in three hours of darkness, despised, forsaken, afflicted, smitten by God. He drinks the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. He suffers everything that can be suffered. So so while we in this life suffer partially, in part, some some of the troubles of the fallen world, Jesus has in fact suffered that which we ought never to suffer, the anger of God and his wrath. And he has done all of this for you. To forgive you. To rescue you from this world of 
sin and death and pain and trouble. He, he who never should have participated in this kind of suffering did, by his own free will. Handed himself over to the whip and the spears and the nails and the mockery and the anger of God. The bleeding in the garden. He handed himself over to all this suffering so that he could rescue you. And he could give you promise that, that where he is, you will be also. That eternal life and joy and peace and the new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That he has made a way for you to come there with him. I think if God had dealt with, with evil according to his power, he simply would have wiped us out. But he has dealt with evil through the cross and given himself a way to save and rescue us from this evil world and bring us to himself in heaven. So we have this comfort. The comfort that not only does God in Christ suffer with us, but most especially that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered for us in our place to win for us forgiveness of sins. So, dear saints, we rejoice that in the midst of all of the suffering of this world, we have this promise. Christ also suffered for you to redeem you and to call you his own. And with this word planted deep in your hearts, you trust in him, and you will come at last to the place where there are no more tears. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope. We hope your time with us was one of joy and peace in hearing the Lord's Word and kindness. If you have questions about anything you heard on today's broadcast, please don't hesitate to contact us at office at hope-aurora.org or call the office at 303-364-7416. For more information about our congregation, for locations, service time, and schedule, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. Thank you for listening to the Word of Hope.